0: I'm Stephen Metcalf and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Gael Garcia Bernal and Gay Lucha Libre edition It's Wednesday, September 27th, 2023 on today's show, Cassandro is a biopic about the Lucha Libre star Cassandro, who improbably became a gay icon. For those of you who don't know, Lucha Libre is the term for pro wrestling as it originated first in Mexico. It stars Gael Garcia Bernal as Cassandro. And then the comedian Hassan Minhaj is in line to take over the Daily Show, but the New Yorker magazine has a hard hitting expose on how factually challenged his work has been as a comedian. We're joined by Slate's own Nitish Pawa to discuss. And finally, Slate has what we call in the business a package, a feature on the 40 greatest standalone TV episodes of all time. We will react to the list. Joining me today is Kat Chow, the author of the memoir Seeing Ghosts from 2021. Cat. I'm so psyched to have you back so soon. Welcome.
1: Thanks for having me on.
0: Yeah, this will be fun. And of course, Dana Stevens is the film critic for Slate.com. Hey, Dana. Hey, Steve. We're uh, face-to-face here. I like this.
2: Yeah, we're back to semi-in-the-same-room. Only Cat <laughs> is, unfortunately, <laughs> remote.
1: <laughs> I'm missing out. Uh, I know it.
0: <laughs> you two could be semi-in-the-same-room. All right. Uh, shall we make a show? Let's do it. All right. Well, Saul is a luchador. That's a pro wrestler. He's from El Paso. He wrestles in Juarez. He also happens to be gay. He's avoided in his career so far becoming what's known as an exotico, a stock wrestling. Villain who's flagrantly, in his persona at least unapologetically, flamboyantly gay. Uh, this is designed uh, on purpose to stir up a homophobic crowd who then roots that much more intensely for the hyper masculine hero to pulverize them. In the face of this, Saul creates a deliciously, outrageously, provocatively flamboyant character, Cassandra, with a twist. Instead of taking the pre scripted fall, as is the fate of every previous exotico his will be the first exotico who wins the movie stars Gael Garcia Bernal as Saul Cassandro and uh, Roberto Colindres is terrific as his trainer Okay, in the clip we're going to hear Bernal as Saul talking to his friend and trainer who's played by Colindres. they're having a heart to heart about Saul's father who's been absent for a very long time let's have a listen
3: oh, you, you knew him Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
4: Yeah. Yeah, he introduced me to Lucha Libre. Took me to a few matches. Mm. You don't...
2: You don't see him no more?
4: No, not for a while. Mm. I came out when I was 15. And he's very... He's a lot into Jesus. So, one day he just stopped coming.
0: Dana, let me start with you. What do you make of this film?
2: I mean... It's absolute joy to watch, and largely because of Gael Garcia Bernal, who gets one of the juiciest roles he's had in a really long time, uh, Mm -hmm. and made me realize that he, yeah, I'd like to see him in more leads. I feel like I've seen him in a lot of supporting roles and things recently, right? Like, he had a way too small role in Station Eleven, I remember when we talked about that show, and disappeared way too soon, but... Man, that guy, his smile, like, Gael Garcia Bernal's smile is the most world-illuminating radiant thing, especially when you see a character like this who has, you know, so many reasons to be miserable, and this movie is really about him kind of finding his joy. I know some critiques of this movie, which are not completely off, are that it needs a little bit more conflict, right? I mean, for a sports movie that's all about, (laughs) you know, men beating each other up in, in rings before the public, it... It moves pretty smoothly through his, you know, coming out process and him becoming a star. And there's a lot of triumphant training montages. And it's it's a pretty e- – it goes down pretty easy for a movie about a gay man coming out in the 1980s. You know, oh, there's yeah. not a lot of context. I don't think AIDS is ever mentioned. You know, there's not really a lot of context about what it meant to come out then compared to what it might mean to come out now. And. The director of the film, Roger Ross Williams is his name, uh, is making his first fiction feature, but he's been a documentarian for a while. And this is his third movie about this real-life person, about Saul Amendariz, Mm -hmm. who who fought as Cassandro. Uh, He made a short documentary, I believe, and then developed that into a feature-length documentary. And now he's making it a fiction film. So he obviously knew about whatever rough edges it is that he's sanding down and leaving out, you know, and made this movie that way for a reason. I guess what I would say about this film overall is that I don't think it's it's the greatest sports film, wrestling film, or even necessarily drama, but it showcases such a gorgeous performance and something so unexpected from Guile Ga- Garcia Bernal. Um, a very physical performance, right? I mean, he's not somebody you would think you'd see in a wrestling ring. He's a small man, but so was the real life Cassandro. And he's very convincing in these training montages and as this little guy who's triumphing over these giant masked figures in the ring. My main critique of this movie actually has to do with the sport of lucha libre, which I will openly, you know, confess I know nothing about. But as anybody who's watched any wrestling can see in in various cultural contexts, wrestling is about kayfabe, right? It's about faking it and staging the fights. And that's not something... This this movie doesn't deny that the fights are staged, but we never see him working out the moves with his opponents. Mm-hmm. So there's this weird myth that the film proceeds under, which is that when he's going into the ring with these guys in masks and they're doing these crazy flips and like things that obviously had to be practiced or at least planned in advance, um, that they don't know who's going to win the match. Right. Is, is, <laughs> did that seem strange that to you guys? That did seem strange to me. That is and a it, good point, yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, Kat, it's almost like that was necessary to keep its tension alive as a sports movie, a right. sports biopic, right. as if outcomes aren't, pre, you know, predetermined outcomes ruin the entire thrust, energizing thrust of a sports film. Is that what was going on here, and, and what'd you make of it?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that there was a moment in one of the fight scenes where The promoter, I mean, they kept showing the promoter's face um, and you could see the expression changing as Cassandra was really revving up the crowd and almost as if like the outcome had not been predetermined Mm. at the time. So, yeah, Dana, like you, I was not familiar, am not familiar with Lucho Libre and as a sports movie and generally I don't even like sports movies. I did enjoy Rocky, you know, that's sort of where I sit with this type of thing. I found myself most engaged in all of the fight scenes, and you know the parts where there was so much pomp, and you were really, really rooting for Cassandro to come into his own, where you wanted Cassandro um, as a character, as his persona, to win inside and out. I think for me, where the movie fell and didn't work as well was anything outside of the Lucha Libre ring. Um, You know, the personal story where our protagonists are sort of working through their everyday life, that just was not as compelling to me. And I know it's a biopic. I know that this is sort of the beats and the, the way that these films are formulated. But to me, I just didn't find it satisfying. Perhaps, Dana, as you mentioned, because there were so many rough edges, so to speak, that had been sanded down, where, yes, there was no mention of HIV or AIDS and how that also really kind of created a lot of a a more intense homophobia um, when Cassandra was coming up in real life um, and things of that nature. And, of course, there's the other thing that I'm sure people have discussed um on the on the Twitters or the X's or whatever we're calling that platform now um and in criticism but Bernal is not gay and I think you know that casting choice while I really enjoyed Bernal in it and I do think he was so radiant and it was really fun just watching him jump around the ring um I would have been curious to see who else they could have cast as well
0: Yeah, I I totally agree with you on that, Kat. Um, I thought that that for dramatic purposes, you didn't need to fudge, you know, the difference between pro wrestling and a real athletic event, um, because what it's really about in some sense is exactly that, the promoters and the sort of shadowy, semi-mafioso people behind the sport simply are in it to make money. And if the crowd goes a certain way, all of a sudden someone becomes a repeat character if the crowd continues to be behind the public of of lucha libre viewers gets behind that character that character will become popular and a uh, given certain shifts in mood and taste that person may go from being a stock villain to a hero you had that great story they didn't quite do it for one thing They're just way too quick. The movie is so strangely conflict-averse, as you say, Dana. It's, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, it is literally in the course of his first appearance as Cassandro that the homophobic slurring of the crowd begins to shade over into appreciation for this extraordinary, like, you know, um, performance as this character. They, and and in the midst of it, some promoter who we never meet as a character, who I think has maybe, is never introduced as a character, um, reads as Anglo, um, who's got like piles of money in his hand off to the side, suddenly says, let him win, let him win. And that's the moment, the entire moment. So it was oddly perfunctory about what could have been a much more interesting dramatic arc um and then the other thing what I what I loved about the movie and and this was successfully brought home to me was um wrestling is sort of men in drag as men it's already such an absurd performance that it's undermining masculinity uh, at mm. the same time it maybe is celebrating it. It's so OTT. It's so freaking over the top and, and performative that the masculinity is somehow unreal. And that made sense that someone performing, you know, gayness or homosexuality, male homosexuality in a provocative way fit in perfectly with it. So I get the logic that went into this performance going from being totally beyond the pale to iconic and beloved. Um, and that that was brought to life by Bernal, who I agree that he is a wonderful actor. He's so, you instinctively love him and root for him. Um, there's a benignity and dignity to him, which is the opposite of flavorless and that smile is just like a sunrise welling up inside him he's just so lovable (laughs) but he's not gay and I i i have to say am i i'm not on the cutting edge of of public opinion about this sort of thing but it seems to me we've evolved completely beyond the moment when straight actors can play um gay characters or no
2: Yeah, that's a good point, although it didn't bother me in the moment. And now that I think of it, on the same day that I watched Cassandro, I also saw at the New York Film Festival, Pedro Almodovar's new movie in which two straight men, I think they're both straight, Pedro Pascal and Ethan Hawke, play gay lovers. They're the the leads of the movie. And that also didn't strike me as unusual.
0: Yeah, I mean, if it's okay with Pedro Almodovar, who cares what Steve Metcalf thinks. Though, Kat, I will say, there is a word for it, Right. The portmanteau word "straight washing." It's not <laughs> yes. like people don't don't object and notice and object.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's a thing that is. I mean, Dana, to your point, there are a lot of examples, but to me, it just cast cast a queer actor, cast someone who is gay. Uh, there are so many actors looking for work um, who are looking for great roles, but I guess to wrap this up, I think that for Cassandro, I really just walked away feeling so lukewarm, thinking this was a really enjoyable movie. This was an enjoyable old biopic. But for me, I mean, it, it lacked so much bite. And again, I just want I want the tension and the ring outside the ring also. Um, and I wanted there to be a bit more substance. I am curious to go back now and watch, you know, the other documentaries or the other works that the director made about Cassandro just to compare and, and see sort of the evolution of his orientation toward Cassandro. Um, but for this film in particular, yeah, it was it was just lukewarm for me. I
2: hear you completely on this movie's lack of bite and its need for more uh, feeling of real danger, but at the same time, if you just want to see Gael Garcia Bernal radiate like only he can do, I, I can't. I can't resist recommending this one.
0: I, I, I fall. I fall exactly where it sounds like the two of you do, basically converging on Bernal's performances. The virtue of the movie. Okay, it's Cassandro. It's on Amazon Prime. It's also in theaters. Uh, check it out. Talk to us about it. All right, let's move on. All right. Before we go any further, this is typically in our show where we discuss business. Dana, what do we have?
2: Steve, we have only one item of business this week. That's to tell our listeners about today's Slate Plus segment. This week we decided to talk about an article that ran in New York magazine's The Cut recently. It's called The Pandemic Skip. It's by Katie Schneider. And in this article, the author tries to make sense of the time that she and other people she knows, mainly her family members, lost or felt like they lost during the pandemic. So it's specifically about that wrinkle in time experience that we've all had in the past three and a half years. And how that affects you at different phases of your life. That seemed like a nice open-ended conversation to have at this particular moment. So we will be talking about the pandemic skips in our own lives later in the show. If you're a Slate Plus member, you will hear that segment at the end of the episode. If you're not a Slate Plus member, you can sign up today at slate.com cultureplus culture plus. In exchange for your membership dollars, you get ad-free podcasts, you get bonus segments like the one I just described, and best of all, you get unlimited access to all of the writing on Slate and all the podcasting too. You'll never hit a paywall when you're a Slate Plus member, and you'll be supporting us, supporting our show, and supporting all the work of our wonderful colleagues. These memberships are really what helps keep Slate going, so please sign up today, if you haven't already, at slate.com slash culture plus. Once again, that's slate.com slash culture plus. All right, Steve, onward.
0: All right, well, the comedian Hassan Minhaj is in line for The Daily Show chair. However, The New Yorker magazine has published a, it really, it has to be said, a fairly withering expose of him by the journalist... Claire Malone. As Slate's own Nitish Powah points out in his Slate piece, there are really two, as I understand it, we'll talk to Nitish in a minute, really two principal accusations here. First, his stand-up, which presumes to be an intimate and one would think truthful look into his personal life is filled with factual inaccuracies. And the work environment uh, of his writer's rooms did not nearly live up to his own stated beliefs in equity, representation, and just basic respect. Uh, Before we talk to Nitish, here's a clip from Minhaj's 2022 special called The King's Jester in which he tells the story of getting hate mail, and in one case, opening a letter to find a mysterious powder. He says that this white powder fell onto his infant daughter. Let's, uh, let's have a listen.
4: We rush down to NYU, but this time we go through the emergency room. And the moment they see the baby, they just rip the clothes off her and they take her away. And me and Bina were sitting in the waiting room for hours and we're not talking. Finally, around midnight, nurse comes in and she's holding my daughter, but she's with an investigator. And the investigator reaches into his pocket and he pulls out a plastic baggie filled with white powder. He goes, Mr. Minhaj, you're very lucky. (laughs) This isn't real anthrax but I've been in this department long enough to know this shit just doesn't come out of nowhere. So I have to ask you something, young man. Who on earth have you been antagonizing?
0: <laughs> so the simplest way to put it is a lot of the very key details in that story, including going to the hospital, um, that his daughter even got some of the powder on her. Those are totally bogus. They're fabrications, according to the reporting in The New Yorker. Um, Okay, well, we're joined now by Nitish Pawa, a staff writer for Slate and author of Hassan Minhaj meant something to brown Americans. Was it all an act? A terrific piece up on Slate now. Yeah, thanks Mm -hmm. for it. Thanks for coming back on the show. Thanks so much, Steve. Yeah, it's great to have you back. Um, I think it was so important for us to start with a clip because I think... The idea that a comedian might not always be telling the truth, I think that's baked into the art form. But there's some turn that comedy has taken, especially, I would say, in maybe the last 10 years. I mean, Hannah Gatsby being a good example of it. Um, Mm -hmm. A kind of confessional comedy that blends stand-up with, um, you know, other forms of, of oral storytelling or performative storytelling. And it presumes to be the truth in some sense. Your piece on Slate was great about this. Talk us through the contradictions here and um, the implications of it.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So the thing with Hasan Minhaj's comedy is that a lot of it and a lot of his career subsequently was kind of predicated on an understanding that he understood what a lot of South Asian Americans, Brown Americans, Muslim Americans had been through over the past couple decades when it came to the post 9-11 age, when it came to government surveillance, general harassment, discrimination, and other forms of targeting like the the letter that he just mentioned. Um, And when it turns out that a lot of that isn't true, I mean... It is one thing for a famous comedian to have embellished stories. I mean, as you alluded to, a lot have done that. But it's another thing when there are so few and it's so rare to have like a really prominent brown comedian up there, a Muslim comedian who is pitching himself as, look, I know what you all have been through. I understand it. I know it firsthand. Here's how I can relate to it. And here's how I can tell these stories and actually get an audience for them because a lot of times these stories are ignored or dismissed. And then for that, basically to kind of fall by the wayside is essentially leaves us with, well, okay, what happens to the people who actually have gone through a lot of this? Are they, do they continue to be disbelieved? You know, do... Does this whole thing just um, give another lie to the whole concept of, you know, sort of truth telling comedy, as you were alluding to? I mean, what, what I think hurts about what Minaj did is that he really banked on that sort of trust and honesty from his fan base. And I think a lot of them rightfully feel betrayed because of that.
2: Yeah, Nitish, I think the thing that maybe shocked me most in reading that profile by Claire Malone, and expose is a good word for it, Steve. I mean, it's not so much a profile as it is. She really is specifically reporting out, you know, mm-hmm. these inaccuracies mm-hmm. yeah. or, or discrepancies in his comedy. And there are a lot more of them than just the one from <laughs> that story about about the baby. Um what really shocked me is his defense of himself. You know, he just didn't, he seemed, (laughs) I mean, I'm sure that he's issued some apologies, but in this piece, he doesn't really apologize or seem to recognize the gravity. And in fact, has this kind of, Shtick where he glosses it over and sort of says, well, but this is the important thing is that these things happen to someone. And so I'm bringing them to light. In other words, he finds this way to sort of heroicize Mm -hmm. his own fabrications as if they're in service of his community Mm -hmm. in a way that I just feel like for members of that community who have been, as you say, through something like that would be a real insult, you know? Um, And so I went into this profile thinking, well, this is a complex situation, you know, I can see his point of view, and because of the way that he kind of tried to cover his ass in real time Mm -hmm. as she was talking to him about it, I came out much more unsympathetic to him than I would have suspected.
1: Yeah, for sure. And I think I was inclined to feel sympathetic. I mean, it's the whole concept of rep sweats, representation sweats, where you're really, there's so few where you really want um, this person to win, whether, you know, it's an actor or it's a you know entire tv show i think the term was coined by i believe it was phil yu and jenny yang and possibly even jeff yang um right around the time fresh off the boat came out um with Mm -hmm. abc but i think what's really interesting here with Hudson is that in a way he is taking these stories that are very i mean not common but in in the air and he's co-opting them for his platform. And I think that's what sticks at me in this kind oh, of mm-hmm. uncomfortable way where it's it becomes so flattening. And Natisha's it's kind of speaking to what you said before about, um, you know, will the other comedians who come up behind him who are brown be less believed? Will they have to sort of work harder or in a different way just to have their um, comedy seen and taken seriously? And I think that... For a lot of comics of color, there's so much justification that you have to do anyway. And so I'm very curious to see how this plays out. And um, in a time where there still are so few, what this will mean going forward.
3: Yeah, absolutely. It's very sad for that reason, I think, more than anything. And as you alluded to, Dana, just the fact that he seemed very unapologetic about the whole thing, that it seemed so, like, self-apparent, so obvious that, well, of course, I, like, made these things up here and there, you know, da-da-da-da. But, I mean, in that clip we just played, you know, it's one thing when, and, you know, I brought up Richard Pryor as an example in the piece, you know, whenever he would talk about his own stories, they, like, were always very clearly, you know, sort of, like, ribald or exaggerated. Or, like, you know, he'd talk about, you know... I accidentally set myself on fire as, like, a very big laugh line. But here, his delivery is so muted and serious up until the supposed punchline. Like, he's clearly telling a dramatic story, and... That does not lend itself well to a supposed, I don't know, quote-unquote emotional truth. Well, I mean, I mean, also
2: just on a most basic level, Richard Pryor really did set himself yeah, on fire, exactly. right? Yeah, I mean, right. that was not but, an exaggeration. Though,
3: though he did tell a lot of
0: stretchers, I mean, I thought that was a really interesting part of your piece and, and this issue in general, which is, you know, this, this notion that any creative writer or performer— person has an implicit contract with their audience. And it is implicit. It's it's often very hard to know what it, it is precisely until it's broken. And he, I think part of the backlash here is that he broke what his implicit contract was with his audience. So, mm-hmm. you know, I kept thinking about the old Woody Allen routine, which if you've never heard it is classic, but very dated of. He, he um, shoots a moose upstate out with some friends and then ties it to the fender of his car to try to drive it home. So I'm driving with a
4: live moose on my
0: fender. The moose is signaling for a turn.
4: And there's a law in New York State against driving with a conscious moose Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays.
0: Nobody believed that Woody Allen went moose hunting, and even if they believed that, they did not believe that he tied a moose to the fender of his car and tried to drive it home, right? So the implicit contract there is, is if you examine it, flagrantly obvious. He's just telling a story for the LARFs, whereas I wasn't familiar with Minhaj's work. He's very funny. I found him very showbiz. I found mm-hmm. him a little too polished. I felt manipulated from the moment he opened his mouth before he began spinning some of these real tuggy heartstring stories. Um, and in that sense, I was really impressed. He's very funny and he's mm-hmm. brilliant a technician. Um, but I didn't like him and I didn't trust him. And I, you know, this whole idea of emotional truth that, you know, there's a moment very early on in his last, nef- I, bl- I believe, the in King's Jester, where he shows a picture of his kid. That is his kid. If you were later told that was not his kid, you mm-hmm. would think this guy's a sociopath. And he gets this huge awe. I mean, he's very in control of the room, which every comedian aspires to be. And he he's very in control of the emotional tonalities of what's happening. And his ability to manipulate laughs, which is whatever was, what every comedian has, overlaps with this uncanny ability to produce awe or, um, god, practically tears. I mean, it's like tear jerking. Um, so I think it's uh, to conclude is I think this is a measure of a couple of different large trends. One is that the shift of comedy in the direction of storytelling and emotional truth telling, um has raised this issue of factuality in a way that didn't apply to Mooses and Fenders and Woody Allen. And secondly, he's in line to be the chair of The Daily Show, Mm -hmm. whose origins are Mm -hmm. in the bald-faced dishonesties that got us into the Iraq War and got George Bush elected Mm -hmm. in the first place, and then, of course, culminated in Colbert and truthiness. I mean, that entire show is based on the idea that comedy is a necessary vehicle for truth-telling in a time of unprecedented public lying. So... I'm curious what you make of all this. I'm sorry for mm-hmm. the monologue, but also what do, if you have any predictions. Like, is he actually going to get this job?
3: Yeah, no, that's a really, really great point. And, I mean, not to compare these two and their misdeeds in any way, but, like, it, you know, it made me think a lot about, like, Louis C.K.'s early, like, uh, stand-up sets where, you know, he'd bring up his kids, he'd bring up his parenting, he'd bring up his, like, thing like, oh, yeah, I'm kind of a bad dude, do do and I mean, these were all moments of connection of endearment with his audience and they did buy into it and they like thought they understood him, which I mean, I I think that should probably provoke some interrogation, of course, into how we interact with our celebrities. But also, as you said, I mean, you know, with The Daily Show at a time when, you know, you had the Bush administration just lying through its teeth um, you had a show, a comic, who was telling this truth about what was going on. And, of course, that leads people to put their trust in such figures. And Minaj obviously comes from The Daily Show, and he's next up in line to potentially host it now. We'll see what happens with that. But, and I mean, to that point... He also very much came up as a solo act during a similar moment when the Trump administration had uh, come into office off all this Islamophobic campaigning and targeting and just like sheer lies about, you know, what was going on in the Middle East or with refugees or migrants. And this guy was here to be like, okay, no, but here's the truth about what we experience, what we face. And there were a lot of people interested in hearing that story around then. And so again, for that to be just shown to be off is like, look, man, like, you call this an emotional truth, but there were a lot of people who listened to you who did not realize that that was implicitly the case or that even these things happened to a lot of people.
1: One thing I did want to bring up is how interesting I thought it was that Claire Malone, the writer of The New Yorker, article about him um really interwove this story with the treatment of his staff um many of them Mm -hmm. south asian american women or women who are immigrants um these producers who really came on to working with hassan and wanting to write or be researchers for his show but um kind of revealed some deep mistreatment and what sounds like misogyny on the show Mm -hmm. their voices and ideas being ignored and I think that I mean of course who's to say what the environment is like or has been in many of these similar um, writers rooms or environments but I think the fact that you know these two things do seem quite braided together is a sign and, I don't know, something to watch out for and also not terribly surprising. When you Mm -hmm. see, um, I guess, someone who is championing something that is uh, what a lot of people are rooting for and they become this kind of voice on a pedestal, it's also, to me, not really terribly surprising to see that there is mistreatment on the back end.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. All right, well, this is one of those stories keep an eye on, right? There's a lot to come, no doubt, like the chess story you joined <laughs> us for a couple of years ago. Nitish, it's great to have you back on the on the show. I hope it happens uh, sooner next time.
3: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: It's yeah. been great. Take care. All right, well, whether we're living in the age of peak TV or trough TV, one thing is clear, so Slate says in its piece, the 40 greatest standalone TV episodes of all time. There's too much TV, but thankfully, not every show has to be watched in its entirety. So, Dana, let me start with you. Yeah, you know, I, there are all these great virtues to the fact that television is serialized. I mean, shows go on and on and on. You develop this kind of at-home intimacy with the characters. Actors deepen into the roles over time until they're just all but indistinguishable from them. They don't even feel like they're acting anymore. And... You know, especially in the age of peak TV or premium TV, you get uh, giant story arcs that are coherent over multiple seasons. Um, But there's this other opposite virtue, which is just that you just pop on a law and order every single one of there's no cumulative power to that show whatsoever other than your love of it developing right they're all standalone uh twilight zone similarly many of them the interesting thing is many serialized shows have these like iconic standalone episodes that one could simply watch without familiarity uh with any other aspect of the show without having watched all of them you contributed to this what do you like about this exercise and what'd you pick
2: Yeah, it's intriguing. I mean, people love to hate on listicles. And I, myself, am not a huge clicker on things that are like... 400 times that Kim Kardashian <laughs> had a cat on her head or something. Uh, I'd but, click on that. But the, this piece of the 40 greatest standalone TV episodes of all time is such a good idea for a listicle for precisely the reasons that you just mentioned, right? I mean, when you're approaching TV, it's there's so much volume to contend with. And if you feel like, oh God, I've never even seen a single episode of Mad Men, right? Which is the case with me. I don't think I've ever seen a complete all the way through single episode of Mad Men. It's, it just seems so daunting that you're going to have To start at the beginning and plow through all these seasons, and the idea that there's sort of a starter episode, or maybe not even a starter episode. Maybe I just want to experience one hour of Mad Men in my life. Which Mm -hmm. hour should it be? Mm -hmm. I think it's an intriguing exercise because for different shows, there are different things that stand as a standalone. Right? It might Mm -hmm. not be the greatest episode of the show because that might depend on the culmination of everything that's come before. Right? Um, But it might be one that that is a bottle episode or has some particular quality. But as somebody points out, I believe it's in the intro to this list. One of the greatest episodes of Breaking Bad, the bottle episode The Fly, in which Jesse and Walter, you know, stuck together in the lab the whole time, wouldn't make any sense or be really any good if Mm. you didn't know the full context of who they were and how they got into that situation. So you would never pick that as a standalone, even if it might be your favorite episode. So that kind of makes for a fun thought experiment. I was asked to contribute to this list, and I only ended up contributing on one show, which is one of my favorite TV shows that started out as a web series, High Maintenance, which we've discussed on this show. (sighs) Yeah. Um, I was so happy to get to be the high-maintenance opinion giver, but it was really, really hard to pick with that show because you could argue, first of all, that every episode is standalone, right? You could almost pick at random. But then again, some of the best episodes of High Maintenance are the least standalone because they're the ones that reveal a little bit about the guy, the mysterious hero of the show, the weed delivery bicycle worker, who in most episodes is somewhat tangential to the main action. But then there's a few episodes that reveal something about his background and it's very exciting that suddenly there's a a rare guy-focused episode. I didn't choose one of those, though, because I think they depend on you knowing that he is not normally the protagonist, right? It would be misleading to watch one where he was the protagonist. And I ended up choosing Grandpa, which is an episode from the first TV season of that show—now they're confusingly about High Maintenance as it starts out on the web, has six great seasons on the web, then has four great seasons on TV—and um, we didn't want to count the web series for the sake of this list. So excluding all of those, the episode Grandpa, which is from the first TV-only season, uh, is— from the point of view of a dog, do you remember this so episode good. either of so you? So good. The I missed
0: it. Yep. I thought I was a completist, but I don't. Oh think well, I've as, seen as this the one. owner <laughs>
2: of a poodle mix, especially, you have to see it. So <laughs> I, I am a poodle mix. It's yeah. this wonderful um, perspective experiment, basically, where um, we see the unfolding of some events in the dog owner's life and in the life of his walker who the dog kind of falls in love with it's really sort of a love story of this lonely neglected dog who gets a dog walker that he loves and gets more attached to her than to his depressed and pretty unengaged owner hey hey stop
1: that's right you stop right there stay stay Yeah, keep staying all right, Gatsby, you come
2: here. It's just, I, I won't give anything more away about it than that, but it's a formal experiment that works incredibly well with mm-hmm. almost no dialogue, um, but really with a, a sense of a different perspective than you will usually get in a series. And it's very funny, very sweet. Anyway, that was my pick for, for my high maintenance episode. But I'm wondering what you guys thought reading through this list. Were there shows, for example, where you would have picked a different episode or, you know, were there shows that you want to watch that you've never seen based on what you saw in this list?
1: yeah well, I'm first of all so glad that you brought up the that dog episode, Grandpa, for my maintenance because that is the episode that I think about often and that I mostly remember from that show. And it's such a delight. <laughs> um, but for me, my orientation toward this list, I also, you know, when I'm given a big list like this, I will scroll through. But if it's so wide ranging, which this is, it's really hard for me to focus. But I think that this list for me is really good. At being a reminder of what I need to go back and watch um, I was so happy to see Kean Peel on there, which is the sketch um, show from I believe like the mid, 2015s era that went on for a while um, that Keegan-Michael Key and Jordan Peele had going for quite a while, where it was just such a delightful, hilarious compilation of their sketches and what they did really well. And there you can really see um, Key and Peele kind of becoming the creators and the actors and the directors that they are today. And the episode that was mentioned was the end
3: who you gonna call
4: (laughs) hi i'm ray parker jr writer and performer of the academy award-nominated hit single ghostbusters from the major motion picture ghostbusters but that's just one song i've written so many other major motion picture theme songs and submitted them throughout the year
1: and, I mean, I can just go down this list, of course, of my favorite Key and Peele moments. But I was really happy to see, um, you know, that show get some love again. Because it's been years since I thought about it.
0: Mm, this is such a pleasure, This reading this. And its taste was impeccable, which you know because it aligns with mine. I mean, just one after the other after the other was the hit rate here was incredibly high for me. I mean, Mm. it just was like a murderer's row. It goes boom, boom, boom. The um, City on the Edge of Forever, classic original from the original series, Star Trek.
2: Oh, yeah, the Harlan Ellison scripted episode. I mean, just,
0: yeah, exactly. I mean, incredible, right? And then from that to the Columbo episode directed by Spielberg and written by Steven Bochco, right? The Hill Street Blues guy who, you, you know, you could really argue that shows kind of Naf now in retrospect, maybe in some ways, but that really introduced the idea of, like, dark, complex um, serial TV back on network back in the day. Uh, Larry Sanders, on and on. The one that really popped out to me is I think I had completely lost track of the show Girls by season six when um, the episode American Bitch starring Matthew Rhys came out. And I cannot trace... Back to the reason why I happened to watch just that one. And I thought, if this is the quality of this show now, it's, you know, we're talking like freaking Moliere here. I mean, there's just, this is incredible television.
2: So you invite her back to your hotel room. What's she supposed to say? No. She admires you. Then you unbuckle your pants. What's she going to do next? You got it wrong. It's not so she has a story so she feels like she
0: exists. I've gone back and rewatched it. It's just what she's doing in that episode is so precise and so freaking lapidary. I mean, it's just like gem cutting sort of psychology of manners, really, or, or satire of manners. Um, In some sense, and I was really, really heartened to see that on the list, too. So I was really, I was completely taken with this list. What a wonderful exercise. And it gave me some viewing to do.
2: I have to say, I also like that this list is very voicey. You know, I mean, there were some, (laughs) I saw some pushback on Twitter about this list of people saying, how could you possibly leave out X, Y, Z, or that there's, you know, years of television that are skipped, which is true. There's relatively few early television shows. But I like that this list was really based on the passion of the individual writers who chose their episodes, you know. There wasn't a sense of like, well, now we've got to plow through the '60s, and now we got to plow through the '70s, and so I'm sure there are some gems that are left out. But I like that each entry really reads like it was it was written by somebody who cares about and knows that show
1: for sure. I mean, there's even an entry dedicated to a SpongeBob episode by the writer and editor Jenny G. Jong, where it's a season one episode 17b, SpongeBob SquarePants Rock Bottom, which is very nostalgic for. People who grew up, uh, you know, watching SpongeBob in the 2000s. When is the next bus to Bikini Bottom? What? The bus schedule, the next bus.
3: I can't understand your accent.
1: The uh, next bus to Bikini Bottom. And so when I saw this entry on the list, I just thought, oh, okay, good. This is this is the type of list we're getting at, where it really is about personal taste, but um, also wonderful just to see these entries uh, kind of sitting alongside one another.
2: Yeah, Kat, I should mention, because you mentioned Jenny Jung, that she was the editor and I believe was the creative mind behind putting this whole list together in the first place. I know she edited my segment.
0: I mean, I, I would just, I know this is, I mean, sort of, the late night stoner talk now, but I, I, you know, that Sopranos episode, College, you could really make an argument, you know, it'd be a little facile, a little tendentious, but you could really identify that episode in particular as the moment, you know, peak TV inaugurated itself or announced itself. I, The Sopranos was just a terrific and groundbreaking show already, but that's episode five of season one and it announced itself as something, like, enduringly special. Uh, It's the one where, because it gets so beautifully and horrifically and funnily at the divided nature of Tony Soprano, right? He's taking Meadow, he's got one sort of, you know, fail son in the making child, and he's got this super high-functioning, meritocratically directed child, his daughter, Meadow, and he's taking her to college visits, like the paradigmatic, right, like upper bourgeois activity, um, because she's seen very good colleges for a parent, right, in this day and age.
1: Are you in the mafia?
4: Am
0: I in the what?
1: Whatever you want to call it, organized crime.
4: That's total crap. Who told you that?
1: That I've lived in the house all my life. I've seen
4: police come with warrants. I've seen you going out at three in the morning. So you never seen Doc Cusimano go out at three in the morning on a call? Did the Cusimano kids ever find $50,000 in Krugerrands and a forty-five
1: automatic while they were hunting for Easter eggs?
4: I'm in a waste management business. Everybody immediately assumes you're mobbed up. It's a stereotype, and it's offensive, and you're the last person I would want to perpetuate it.
0: Fine. In the episode, I believe he spots someone who's in the witness protection program who Due to the dictates of his day job, which is as a cold, you know, stone cold blooded killer, that he's going to have to kill this guy, and the two—it's the collision of these two worlds that have sent him, by the way, into therapy. The whole MacGuffin of the show initially, um, and it—it it, just—it just was such a work of art. And and anyway, I, you know, my point is only I think that that. That episode really stands out as the moment you thought, I cannot believe television is a medium, which I grew up with as the like boob tube and like lowest common denominator and, you know, driven by nothing but mass ratings, bulk ratings had become just become a different medium. And here we are 24 years later and think about what's flowered out of that weird seed.
1: I actually haven't watched Sopranos before ever, so uh, Steve, that's actually a very, very good place for me to start. And well, I'll watch the whole series this winter. You know, when I'm hibernating, so I'm excited, and I think this list is going to fill in a lot of gaps that I have in my TV knowledge.
0: I'm just processing the fact that you have not watched The Sopranos. I know. Cat.
1: <laughs> just <know>. steadying
0: <laughs> myself, even though I'm sitting down already.
2: Steve, I'm not going to hoist my banner of all the great shows that you have not watched a single second of. <laughs> That's so true. Thank you, yeah. Dana,
1: for coming to my rescue. I know. It's just it's never been the thing that I've sat down to watch, but I guess I have to now, you know?
0: All right. Well, the, the listicle, that was the word I was looking for earlier. Thank you, Dana. The listicle in Slate. It's called the 40 greatest standalone TV episodes of all time by Slate Staff. All right. Moving on. Ah, right now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. What do you have?
2: Oh, I'm so excited for this one this week. I have already, this has already gone out in my real life endorsement list. Like my entire family, my daughter, my parents. I've sent this link to so many people because it's just so wonderful. Have either of you read the beautiful... I guess you'd call it a profile interview with Martin Scorsese from GQ that came out. I believe no. it came out the no, day before the we taping. So it's a not quite profile, more of an extended interview with Martin Scorsese by Zach Barron, who's a staff writer at GQ. And As you know, if you've ever heard Martin Scorsese talk, uh, either in real life after a screening, as I've heard him do before, or just in a documentary, whatever, on a talk show, the man can talk, right? Mm -hmm. You turn on the spigot and he's just, he's thinking aloud, he's making associations, he's doing incredible things with language, and... Zach Barron is just so great at getting across what it's like to sit down in Martin Scorsese's study around all of his books and Mm -hmm. his photos and his movie posters and talk to him about not just his new film, Killers of the Flower Moon, that's coming out this fall, but really, and not even just about film or art or his career, but really about life, the end of life, mortality, you Mm -hmm. know, how his thinking about his art has changed over the seven decades of his career. I mean, it's like the dream conversation you'd want to have with this incredible artist and it's just a sublime sublime conversation so it's in GQ and the title is Martin Scorsese colon I have to find out who the hell I am which is very much the tone of the whole conversation just not a a wise man dispensing profundities but really someone who is still struggling to figure out what the hell to do next you know just an an
1: artist who feels the urgency of creating it's pretty amazing
0: that sounds incredible thank you for um, pointing us to it Uh, Kat what do you have
1: for me this week, it's going to be Claire Keegan's novel, Small Things Like These. Have either of you two read it? No. It's oh, it's by the author Claire Keegan, and it's a novella. It's 116 or so pages, and Claire Keegan is this Irish writer, and she writes this novel in this almost... Um, Dickensian way where you feel as though you were reading a classic. The prose is so taut. It's so beautiful. It's obviously so slim. Um, it's set right before Christmas time in a small village and it's really about this protagonist named Bill Furlong who is very much of the town. He, um, part of his job is bringing deliveries to people all around and so really he sees so much but one of the things that he becomes a Awakened to is um really what this story is about which is ireland's magdalene laundries um these women and children who were essentially forced to work in these laundries run by the um these roman catholic institutions and um the The novel says so much, and it's so so slim, but it really is about not being able to look away um and what happens when you begin to uh really understand the world emerging and all of its realities around you. I won't say more, but it is beautiful, and it is going to stick in my head for a long time because it really just it's one of those novels where. Claire Keegan is able to create so much tension that is sustained throughout this kind of low simmering build of horror, really. So um, mm. that's small things like these by Claire Keegan.
0: That sounds amazing. All right. Well, my endorsement this week is is someone brought together two of my very far-flung and more esoteric interests and made them explode galvanically in in my mind at least in contact with one another the first preoccupation is with Borges the great Nobel prize-winning um, uh, Argentine author you know famous for labyrinths and uh, various other things but um, and specifically Borges's preoccupation with time and the nature of time in its relation to consciousness and language um, and the physicist the german physicist heisenberg who's so f- he's so i i mean i literally i read like i was reading a thriller of like 500 page biography of heisenberg because you know heisenberg was essentially the non-jewish physicist who stayed behind in germany and who motivated everything that unfolds in Oppenheimer. In fact, the movie Oppenheimer says this, that it was the fear that of the great physicist, the, the Gentile great physicist was Heisenberg, the German Gentile great physicist was he- Heisenberg, the Nazi great physicist, the one genuinely great Nazi physicist, therefore, was Heisenberg. Therefore, Hitler might be building a bomb. And so every one of these essentially pacifist and certainly deeply humanist uh, now-American Jewish physicists, many of them emigre physicists, were convinced to build a weapon of mass destruction because of that fear. When it later came out that, in fact, the Germans had virtually no atomic program, the the question then arose whether Heisenberg had slow-walked it and, in fact, was, in his own silent way, one of the great heroes, unsung heroes of World War II, or whether he wanted with all his heart— competitively to win the atomic race and was just had just fucked it up, basically. And he was the worst of the quizlings. Anyway, I'm totally preoccupied with Heisenberg, with the uncertainty principle. And what's fascinating about that is, you know, the uncertainty principle applies to Heisenberg's life. We can't know. And nobody has ever determined what precisely his motivations were during the war. And anyway, so I'm fascinated with these two things. Well, Lo and behold, in Aeon Magazine, the wonderful online magazine, uh, um, William Eginton, who's a professor at Johns Hopkins, has written a book about, about the fact that they were they didn't know one another at all or other one another's work, but they were pretty much precise contemporaries and they were working on exactly the same problem. Borges is a literary writer and um, Heisenberg is a physicist. And I guess briefly what you could say is that it's the fact that Time is seamlessly successive in its nature and therefore an instrument of perpetual change that we need to falsify reality in order to understand it. I and mean, that's Heisenberg's whole thing. You can't know both the position and the momentum of a particle um, exactly. Um, to measure one is to get a false measure for the other and vice versa. Where so much of Borges' work, as Eggensen says, is about you know, just to have a concept of reality means you have to falsify it Anyway, this essay, I've probably made it sound forbidding. I shouldn't. It's beautifully, beautifully and um, very lucidly written, and it's open to sort of anyone who has any interest in the philosophical idea of time, which obsessed Borges. He wrote one of my favorite essays about it. It's called A History of Eternity. That's also available online. But anyway, so this wonderful, wonderful essay is called Quantum Poetics, how Borges and Heisenberg converged on the notion that language both enables... And interferes with our grasp of reality by William Eginton. Uh, check it out, and we'll link to it. And um, trust me, it's better than any summary I could give of it. Kat, thank you so much for coming back and talking to us. It is such a pleasure.
1: Thank you. Loved it.
0: Dana, uh, it's really fun to do it face to face. That was a fun show.
1: It was. It was a
2: delight.
0: Yeah, very much a fun show. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, that's slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. Our introductory music is by the composer Nicholas Bertel. Our producer is Cameron Drews. Our production assistant is Kat Hong. For Kat Chow and Dana Stevens, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you soon, I hope.